welcome to the Vocational Education Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Dan. I'm thrilled to share time today with Kristen Hansen, founder of Enhanced Performance. Kristen works with leaders and sales professionals who want a scientific brain-based approach to leadership, persuasion, motivation, coaching, resilience, adaptability, sales, innovation, and peak performance. So firstly, Kristen, did I miss anything? No, that sounds pretty good. Leadership, (laughs) coaching, peak performance, innovation, resilience, adaptive leadership. Yeah, those sorts of topics. Fantastic. Uh, Could you share with everybody a little bit about the reason behind founding Enhanced Performance and how it's grown over the last decade and a half? Sure. Well, I guess um, I was passionate about helping people get the best out of themselves as managers and leaders. And I guess that stems from a real desire to help people achieve their potential. And I thought, well, if I can help managers be better at managing and really help them be leaders, then that would be something pretty important. So I started Enhanced Performance as a coaching company with executive and leadership coaching and sales coaching, uh, following my background in sales management for 20 years. And um, and then I just ended up growing into the, the training side of things and the speaking side of things when I added on uh, the um, neuroscience specialization, which I've been doing probably for about 10 years now. And that's how I guess the the business sort of ended up growing into this niche area um, that we find ourselves in now. Did you find back then when you started that there was, I guess, a need for leadership training? Yes, I think um, that's a good point. I think there's always been quite a lot of leadership training. A couple of things I found is one, it tended to be only for the senior managers, not as much for frontline managers. And that was evidenced by when I was first starting to work with AIM, the Australian Institute of Managers, that's now labelled and renamed the Institute of Managers and Leaders. There sort of seemed to be quite a lot of management focus generally in training. And I was probably more passionate about leadership. Um, And secondly, I think what there wasn't was a bit more science to leadership development. And so I would speak to people who were more technically minded or what have you and find that they didn't really rate leadership development that high because I think they found it generally in the category of soft and fluffy, just like emotional intelligence and what have you. And I was pretty determined and interested in looking at the science behind some of these softer skills to give them a greater voice in the technical audience area. I think you nailed it on the head when you talked about soft skills or the soft and fluffy, how difficult it is for managers out there, uh, so the people who are going to book you for workplace training, to measure their return on investment. You know, they, they might spend tens of thousands of dollars organizing training for people. And uh, when it's soft skills, it's so hard to say, well, this is where you've, or how you've increased over time. Before we get into the technical way you do that, how have you approached that in the past? Well, I guess there's a few ways that we measure outcomes with our clients. Some of our clients already have things like engagement surveys that they're completed uh, or the like. There's obviously so many different variations of that sort of thing. And we utilize those as a base point and then decide what of those areas did they want to improve. Um, And that might be that they have details on leadership and the areas within leadership that people need to develop. So 
you sometimes use a company's uh, own structure for measuring results. That also, those results can be related to sales and other things like, um, you know, retention of talent or stress leave or what have you. So they don't have to be just in the engagement area. So we've, we utilize a whole range of different measures that a client already is looking at or is looking at measuring regardless of the training for other reasons. In line with trying to measure qualitative results, I've noticed among all your qualifications, you also have uh, certifications in Genos and PRISM. Could you explain a little bit to the listeners about how these two certifications have led to better workplace outcomes? Yes, certainly. So the Genos is an emotional intelligence assessment tool and the PRISM is a neuroscience-based online uh, assessment tool that measures your brain preferences, how you're wired. And both of them are available in a 360. So a lot of the work we do with leaders um, is over a period of nine to 12 months, for example, as our um, as our period. And we may do a pre and post uh, assessment 360. So often what we find is that we can measure right up front what people, uh, because for example, the PRISM is a- able to be uh, tailored to the leadership competencies that the individual company utilizes. So what we can find is that uh, we can do a summary and say, well, this leadership team overall, like one team we're working with at the moment, they have some great strengths in self-motivation, in commitment, um, things like that, drive, uh, business acumen. But the areas where they were lowest scoring was developing others, motivating others, coaching others, etc. So it became a good measure straight away for us to say, well, these are the areas of uh, development that we need to focus on over the next six to 12 months. And that's what we're working on. So the great thing about PRISM brain mapping I think that I've found is the ability to uh, tap into leadership competencies that exist within an organisation, mm-hmm. as well as measure other things such as mental toughness and emotional intelligence, sort of all in the one report. Um, so that's another way that we've measured. And the other way that we measure is that we can create a survey monkey at the beginning of the intervention or something similar and uh, measure something in particular that they're wanting to get results in. Is it your experience that organisations generally want to see some sort of quantitative change in these qualitative measures? So interestingly, I have found that not being such an issue in terms of uh, it's something that's talked about a lot, um, but I certainly don't think it's a... uh, I don't think it has to be there for organisations. I think many organisations recognise the cost of not having good leadership um, and that comes through in, you know, things like the engagement surveys or loss of good talent or stress management. And one of the other areas, of course, that's massive at the moment is change leadership, which we work a lot in. And basically, they see people struggling every day, all day. So we're actually trying to solve specific problems here. And I think those problems are evident and what they see uh, needs fixing they want to fix so sometimes I don't think the measure is the only thing that's important Mm. I think some of these organizations know that general talent development and fixing these specific problems is is what they're wanting to do often you've worked with some very large and iconic organizations Telstra Google NRMA ANZ Allianz News Corp the, the list goes on can you share any secrets to gaining and sustaining work with such organizations Yes, I guess when I started, I 
wouldn't have thought I'd be able to be employed by the larger organisations in Australia being sort of, you know, just me type thing. Um, and we have expanded, I guess, just recently. But most of those organisations I work with independently. And I think one of the keys is, um, first of all, I've done a lot of speaking. And so that, uh, I guess, get is one of the ways I've ended up with these opportunities. And that sort of started by, I guess, establishing an interest group in neuroleadership. So finding a niche um, and then having a voice in that niche and then inviting people along where I was literally cutting sandwiches and buying beers and wine myself um, and then being able to host people and having a, a neuroscientist and me talk a little bit about the field early on. That actually generated quite a lot of interest, but none of the business in that space actually happened for the first year. So I think a lot of it's relationship-based. I certainly made some great connections. People knew who I was, what I did, and as their need arose, I certainly never mentioned, oh, can I come and work for you, Macquarie, or can I come and work for you, NAB? That It didn't work like that. It was just as the need arose, they knew me, they knew what I did, and they rang me. And so there were opportunities from that. And then I think referrals, of course, is a big one. So as one person left one organisation, they'd often then transfer me to the next organisation mm. um, and and bring my work there to the next organisation. And generally speaking, I think what works to um, keep the sustainability is um, I feel like I have a very flexible model. So I'm happy to you know, be the, the trainer or the facilitator. I'm also happy to bring in other facilitators uh, from a, a flexible um, investment perspective. I'm also happy to provide um, train-the-trainer models. So I guess I come from a position of I want what we're doing um, to get out there as broadly as possible and whatever way that most usefully will work with the client to leverage um, the opportunity is is what I try to do. So leverage and I also think really being clear on their problems and making sure that your your uh, communication around the programs or the solutions that you're providing are problems led as in this is the problem we understand you have or I got to know the problem and this might be the solution. So I think you know, not coming in too early with what your solution is before you really understand the problem is probably one of the things that I think helps. When you've been talking with and presenting to groups like this or organisations like this, what are some of the key issues that you see being raised again and again? Yeah, so I guess um, we tend to focus in five key areas uh, of, of challenges faced by business and we summarise that in our NeuroTread framework, so the TREAD. And the first one is the cognitive overload and lack of innovative problem solving. So this whole concept of thinking and thinking well and decision making, uh, I think with our information overload uh, situation that we're all in with emails and endless meetings, there's not a lot of great thinking time. Mm. So that's the first thing. So we aim to address that by understanding how the brain best makes decisions and what we can do to maximise our cognitive and creative abilities. And the second area would be stress and illness-related productivity loss. Um, and that's all to do with, you know, how the organisation, you know, is managing, um, whether it be sick leave or stress leave or these sorts of things that sort of manifest even in underperformance or bullying and harassment charges. There's a whole range of different things that have, have I think, come about because people are under so much pressure. So we train, therefore, in, in resilience and uh, 
I guess, emotion management techniques, which really are aligned to the emotional intelligence space. Um, I think the other area is, uh, the third area really is average performance and influencing capabilities. So, you know, people are always wanting, um, I think, more out of people and, and better capability. And we're all sort of running a bit around like headless chooks because mm. we've got so much on and it's very difficult to actually spend the time as managers and leaders to get that improved performance of ourselves included as well as our team members, but also be very good at the influencing skills and more and more organisations rely on, you know, stakeholder engagement and matrix systems and much more complex systems than what used to be where it was just a manager and direct report. So I find that technical managers and specialists, they need a bit of support in how to influence more effectively. And the fourth area would be the massive amount of rapid and relentless change that faces all our organisations um, and worldwide, this is obviously the issue. And so adaptive leadership skills, being able to adapt, be agile, be flexible is what we sort of address quite readily. And mm. as part of that, it's about how to start new high performance habits and how to get rid of uh, habits that aren't serving us well. So being, you know, a manager rather than leader might be much more telling and controlling and that's not going to serve us moving forward with the younger workforce coming in and with much more need for us to be agile and flexible about how, about how we approach things. Mm. And then the final area would be, I think, the general need for a coaching approach to performance. I think that's been relatively identified, uh, well and truly identified as a, a challenge about how to bring about a coaching culture. And so um, we look at a, that from our develop point of view. Mm. How do you develop individuals with a brain-based coaching approach and how do you generate a coaching culture and habitually change an entire culture to, you know, do more asking than telling. So it's a big challenge, mm. but it is something that we're certainly working toward and believe in, you know. Just commenting on that last one, there are a lot of uh, managers out there who are in a management position, usually because of their vocational competencies, like they are engineers and they are very good engineers, therefore now they're a manager of an engineering department. But from what you were saying, that need to be able to be a coach is inherent in that new role as a manager and required as a part of that new role. Is that correct? Yes. So I think that's probably where we've ended up with most of our interest in this neuroscience field has been, you know, with with the banks, we're pretty much working with most of the major banks, with engineering organisations like transport and main roads, government and what have you, Vic Roads. Um, certainly we've found as well with technology that there are a lot of managers, a lot of more technically, um, maybe even left brain, you might say, oriented people who really want to whether they do want to or not, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, want to be better at um, people leadership, getting the very best out of people. And yet they don't necessarily, they haven't necessarily been groomed, trained or interested, mm -hmm. quite frankly, in the people side of things. And we find that regularly. A lot of the people I coach will openly say, that's not my cup of tea really, but that's what I now need to do. Um, so, yeah, again, coming at it from a scientific perspective, a very logical evidence-based perspective really works for that type of audience in particular. 
And so, um, you know, I think there's a, a massive uh, growth area in general in, in those sort of areas for this type of um, leadership approach and change leadership approach. I can certainly see how that logical approach would appeal to the manager I just outlined, like the engineer or the, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. technically competent person. They might say, well, just give me the facts. You know, <laughs> How on earth can yeah, I that's right. be a coach? You do, you've got to show me how, you know, what, what dials do I have to turn to make this happen? It brings me to my next question. Uh, you're on your website. You've got a list of a lot of um, colleagues there that help you with uh, enhancing performance. So they are facilitators of your program in other states and, and territories. What characteristics do you think make a great facilitator and can these characteristics be learned or do you have to have some level of talent? Well I guess some level of talent is helpful and some level of passion about training and facilitating because some people don't get a lot of energy from the facilitation they get more energy maybe from one-on-one uh, interactions what have you and when I meet people like that I say fantastic would you prefer to do the small group facilitation or the you know um, the executive coaching so I think there is an element of what do we love doing and if that happens to be being in front of a room and engaging a group and what have you then that's one of the key things and being open of course to being interactive and what have you I think things skills like being interactive and being humorous which I think is also a really pretty important part of good great facilitation Uh, being able to stretch people in their thinking and you know walk on the edge uh, and being able to be credible I think many of those things are important characteristics probably credibility is one of the ones that uh, is not as easy to teach it's a bit about your background a bit about your know-how because I think you know, people who have had a background in management and what have you are able to walk the talk a little more as a facilitator. So maybe that's something that I think is of benefit. Uh, But I think all the other um, aspects probably can be learned, Um, being personable, being engaging. Uh, I know I started my own journey as a facilitator really by facilitating for the Australian Institute of Management after I'd done a little bit of facilitation for News Limited. And um, I found it was a very steep learning curve myself for getting better at noticing engagement, asking questions, not providing too much content at one time. You know, there's so many different tricks and uh, aspects, I guess, to what I think is excellent facilitation and I'm absolutely still learning that every Mm. time I facilitate I look for what's a better way to do this um but yeah I think this this quest I think one of the key things is the key things is curiosity and quest for what does it take to learn and experience um new information to make it one's own is something that I'm always looking for in myself and in other facilitators that we work with what draws you to a facilitator? If you see someone uh, or a public speaker, if you see someone up on stage or someone in front of a group, what draws you to them? I love them being really authentic. So mm. sharing a bit of themselves, being personable, being not infallible, but being, you know, vulnerable. So I think that is a very um, endearing characteristic. Uh, I think mixing it up is also great. So somebody who can change pace, change volume, change, uh, 
environment, change, mood. Uh, so somebody who is influential on the environment is also something that I find really appealing in a facilitator. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, somebody who is really great with questions and, and that interaction that I was mentioning before. Um but I also still like the person who is also extremely spontaneous in the moment and can have a laugh with a participant, draw from the content what the participants are showing and make something of it as evidence and what have you. And and that's probably not that easy for everybody, but I think it's one of those things that helps the participants in the moment understand the context um, and see visually and hear what the facilitator is trying to, you know, train. And that's something I'm always looking for. How do I engage with my own material with the participants live in front of everybody so that there is a non-planned but still highly executed outcome that shows a key message that people go, wow, that that just happened in front of us and so therefore there is proof because that that couldn't have happened otherwise you know if that wasn't a formula so I think things like that are the things that I like to play around with on the edge and continuously challenge myself around and um, that's I guess me trying to master that craft of great facilitation but as I say I think there's still a lot more I need to learn about experiential facilitation and that's probably one area that, you know, while all my sessions are experiential, I think there's people out there doing really fascinating, amazing things that are very left of centre or what have you and I'm still playing around with some of those. Do you think some of those characteristics or some of those skills apply to a coach as well? Like you talked about managers being coaches. Is that something that's transferable to to someone like that? I guess I sort of look for slightly different things in a coach. They'd still be, of course, personable and humor, um, humorous and and authentic and provide a stretch. I think the stretch is very important in a coach. Um, And I also think structure is very important in both a coach and, you know, a facilitation um, or, or a facilitated session. Um, but I think one of the things that's important in a coach is the ability to really adapt um, to the one person that's in front of you. And where, as a facilitator, you need to adapt to the group and get a, a vibe. And if the, the vibe is sort of, you know, mellow, then you don't come in and rah-rah, um, but you sort of bring them on a journey to hope that they can end up rah-rahing with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's a, a coaching situation, then I think this concept of being uh, really flexible in your approach to that individual is probably something that I look for as a valuable um, asset for a, a coach. Just to change tack a bit, if I could grant you three wishes, I have my little magical wand right here and I'm waving it around as we speak. What changes would you like to see in the workplace training sector here in Australia? I think we do need to get better at spacing education and uh, and training. So I do think we need to overall be better at utilising technology and, you know, somebody who's trying to do that myself, I don't think there's the easiest ways to to go about that. But I think, you know, utilising things like podcasts, webinars, 
articles in between, buddy systems, uh, all that sort of stuff. I think there's still a lot of vocational education, for example, that I'm aware of that is that one or two day, you know, intervention, which is great and it's easy and that's what people come and pay for and what have you. But I think the spacing um, is a really important part of, of education and helping people have new habits. So I'd love to see people be a bit cleverer with that and also probably more um, a, a bit cleverer with modulising things just to one to two hour segments and, you know, very smaller segments, those sorts of things. So I think they're the things that come to mind. Yeah. yeah. Just being a bit more responsive to what managers need. And perhaps the outcomes as well, because the idea of a spacing, if I can, I guess, read you correctly there, there was a study done of medical students uh, just a few years back of their ability to retain some of the basic chemistry they were taught in the first year. And the study was quite simple. It just said, you know, if we repeat it, um, you know, twice, how long will you remember it for? If we repeat it four times over a period of about a month or 90 days it was, you know, will you retain it longer? And the evidence from that particular study was quite overwhelming that repetition over a spaced period of time improves the the learning improves the embedding of the learning so that you had doctors many years down the track could remember their their um, basic chemistry a lot better if uh, mm. in the initial times there was space and it was taught and repeated over just a period of 90 days yeah absolutely and I look the brain changes neuroplasticity the brain's ability mm. to change changes based on two important ingredients attention and positive feedback so if we have attention to our um our, our learning, if we pay attention density, which is quality and quantity of attention, that mm -hmm. can make a big difference. And then obviously we also need to provide some positive feedback along the way for the incremental improvements that are being made for that new habit or that new, ha that new learning. Mm. So that's why a lot of our programs, if we're running them over nine months, we will repeat, 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 repeat you know, a few things right up front of every session and get them to sprout it back and in their own ways and all that sort of stuff. So it's also the that once you have to train somebody else in something, your learning goes up massively. So one of the things I like to do is get people to stand up at a, a you know, a whiteboard or a flip chart around the room and explain it to each other when mm. they've learn something and I think that's the way things you know sink in a, a much more so yeah there's I think uh, that's that's probably the one thing that I would look to challenge us all on mm. myself included you know how do we continue to make the journey um, one that has much more reinforcement along the way and much better opportunity for people to come back and revisit the information from different perspectives yeah, and as you undoubtedly know and you probably teach, is that when you do think of information in different contexts, you're retaining it in different parts of your brain, therefore your recall is a lot better. So yeah. speaking of that, uh, is there a book – sorry, there is a book that comes to my mind, but is there a book that you would recommend uh, vocational educators out there to perhaps read? Well, that might influence them about things like that. Yeah, sure. So um, first of all, uh, David Rock, who's the founder of The Field, I guess, he wrote a, a book called Your Brain at Work. And that's a great book. And um, uh, that's sort of got us started. And then secondly, I've got my own book called Traction, The Neuroscience of Leadership and Performance. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, that covers basically what we're talking about, the TREAD um, and our key sort of programs. The brain that changes itself is also great to fundamentally understand how the brain uh, changes over time. That's Norman Deutsch, yeah. And also, You Are Not Your Brain for Generating New Habits by Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz. The other book I was going to raise with you is Brain Rules by John Medina. Have you read that one? Yeah, that was the other one that I thought of. Yeah, Yeah. I just couldn't remember what it was called, but I had the image of it in my mind and I (laughs) hadn't really thought of that because, yeah, I hadn't thought of what – I didn't have that as a question, so I knew that there was some – books that would come to mind but I thought oh no I, I don't remember that one. Oh, that's okay no well those ones you've suggested they're a fantastic read so anyone listening to the podcast please go out there and uh, and see if you can find copies of these books it will help you enormously with uh, the way you approach your training and plan for your training so just at the end of this um, Kristen just any last words of wisdom for our audience well other than you know be fascinated about your own brain be curious about what you can do for yourself to reach your own potential and help others reach their potential ask lots of questions the more questions we ask the better we understand people's problems and the more engaged people feel that we are with them and believe in ourselves believe that we can make a difference and be confident in what we're offering because i think there are a lot of people who perhaps struggle with the sales component of getting their message across and that's something that uh, i think is a bit of a shame because i think there's some amazing facilitators as well who don't necessarily feel confident enough all the time in being able to explain what they do and how they do it in a way that gets real traction. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Kristen. We'll include links to your website, of course, and anything else you'd like to share with us on the uh, podcast notes. And other than that, uh, we'll see you in the wide world of training and workplace assessment. Great. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. For show notes and more information, follow the links in the podcast or go to danhill.com.au.